I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Today I'd like to talk a little bit about the subject of discipleship. Of course, the great commission given to churches by Christ in Matthew 28 commands that we make disciples. That is the central mission of the church. But an important question that every Christian must ask then is, what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, very simply, of course, a disciple, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, will observe all that Christ commanded. In other words, a disciple of Jesus Christ will be simply characterized by a certain way of life, certain behaviors. Christians are a new people of God, 1 Peter 2 says, whose behavior should emerge from and reflect their biblical beliefs and values. This is why scripture gives such attention to the way that we live as Christians. We should be holy as God is holy, 1 Peter chapter 1 says. Although Christians are new creatures with new hearts of obedience to Christ, holy behavior is not something that comes automatically. Observing Christ's commands, as the Great Commission explicitly states, is something that must be taught. In other words, true conversion is not simply assent to certain facts. It is a life-changing entrance into communion with God. It is, as 1 Thessalonians 1 says, turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and then pursuing a life of holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. So understanding that discipleship begins with evangelism, with accepting the gospel, but it involves more than that, the question remains as to how Christians are shaped into disciples. How do we do that as churches? Well, certainly much of what is involved with this kind of Christian sanctification and discipleship is coming to know more truth. Without a proper set of beliefs, a Christian will not behave in a manner worthy of Christ. But the central point that I want to make here is that data transmission is not all there is to discipleship. It's not just about communication of ideas to the mind. And there are a couple reasons for this. First, Christian behavior is more than simply a right collection of beliefs. Beliefs are important, But in the Great Commission, Jesus did not just say, teaching them all that I have commanded. No, he said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Christian behavior is a collection of skills, and development of a skill set requires more than just intellectual knowledge. But second, making disciples is more than just data transmission because the reality is that most of our actions are not the result of deliberate, rational reflection upon what we believe. Some of our actions are. But most of how we act on a daily basis is due to ingrained habits. We may understand the gospel, we may diligently learn biblical doctrines, and that is all essential and important, but that will not necessarily make a disciple who is characterized by Christian moral living, especially if we have many habitual behaviors that conflict with biblical living. A drug addict will still have to deal with his addiction. A petty thief might find himself unintentionally slipping things off the shelf into his pocket. A lazy husband is still going to have difficulty finding the energy necessary to help with the kids. Old habits die hard, even for a Christian. But third, 
Whether or not people are acting on the basis of a deliberate decision or just habitual response, the third important point here to recognize is that people ultimately will not act primarily or exclusively on the knowledge in their minds, but rather on the inclinations of their hearts. For instance, a child who is terrified of dogs is not going to pet one, no matter how many statistics you give her about the docile nature of domesticated canines. A man whose heart is captivated by pornography is going to sin continually, no matter how much that he knows in his mind that it is wrong. Another way of saying this is that people act more based on their feelings than on their knowledge. And the way many evangelicals try to combat this reality is to urge people, live according to your beliefs rather than your hearts. But it's not quite that simple. The problem is not that we have replaced what drives our actions with our hearts instead of our minds. We cannot help but be driven by the inclinations of our hearts. This is how God designed us. And philosophers from Plato to Christian theologians like Augustine and Edwards and Lewis all recognize this. If the intellect, what we believe, and the heart conflict, we will always do what we want to do rather than what we know we should do. This is the nature of humanity. And so in order to cultivate holy living, in order to make disciples, we must concern ourselves with nurturing moral virtue, the inclinations of our hearts. As I mentioned a moment ago, one theologian who emphasized this was C.S. Lewis, and I want to recommend to you a book that he wrote that articulates this central idea, and it's his book titled The Abolition of Man. In this book, Edwards is arguing that education, or for our purposes, discipleship or worship or church ministry, is not just about filling the head with information, as we've been talking about. It is, Lewis argues, about training people to judge things for their value and and for their truth and for their beauty and developing a distaste for what is ugly and evil and false. Again, the inclinations of the hearts. It's not just training the mind. It's training the heart. Not simply accumulation of knowledge, but development of the desires of our hearts. He argues that modern education, and I would extend this to modern discipleship, modern missions, modern worship, has bought into the idea that valuing is secondary, that beauty is merely in the eye of the beholder. And what Lewis argues then is the result of this is people who swing back and forth between either brutality, loving too harshly, or perhaps even not loving enough, to sentimentality loving too sweetly or loving too much, loving in a way that is incongruent with the actual thing that we love. Lewis calls this men without chests, people who don't have cultivated affections for what is true, good, and beautiful. And that's exactly what is at stake. In discipleship, in the mission that Christ gave to us as his church, we need to give our attention to more than just data transmission. We need to give attention to the cultivation of hearts. And this is true because the kind of spiritual transformation that we're after happens by means of the living and active word of God. 
God, and God's word is not merely transmission of data. God's inspired word, as 2 Timothy 3 says, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The sufficient word has given those ordinary means of grace that through their regular use will shape Christians to live as disciples who observe everything that Jesus taught. The regular disciplined use of these means of grace that the word of God has given to us progressively forms believers into the image of Jesus Christ. These means that the Bible itself proclaims and prescribes enable Christians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This very recognition that the word of God is what has ultimate power supports what I've been saying, that discipleship is more than didactic because the scriptures themselves are rarely merely didactic. The problem is that a didactic conception of discipleship has led to viewing the scriptures as merely a collection of didactic propositions meant to inform the mind. But this is clearly not the case. The Bible is a work of literature. It's a work of art employing vast variety of aesthetic devices to communicate and form us in ways that could not be otherwise. The Holy Spirit of God inspired every word in the original autographs of Scripture. And this implies that while the word choices and grammar and syntax and poetic language and literary forms were the products of the human author's writing style and their culture and their experiences, we have to also affirm that these aspects of the form of Scripture, the way God chose to communicate his truth in his word, is exactly how God desired his truth to be communicated for the formation of his people. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser puts it this way. He says, It has been said that poetry is the best words put in the best order. Similarly, because we are dealing with the Bible as God's word, we have good reason to believe that the biblical words are the right words in the right order. It's critically important, I believe, to recognize that truth in Scripture is more than merely scientific fact statements. Christianity really cannot be boiled down into merely a set of doctrinal propositions. Now, don't get me wrong, the Bible contains statements of theological fact. Much of the content of Scripture can and should be summarized in theological propositions. Doctrinal affirmation remains important for defining various aspects of biblical orthodoxy. But the fact of the matter is that God cannot be known fully through mere statements of theological fact. God is known through his word, and his word is more than a collection of right statements. It is inspired literature that employs aesthetic devices of the imagination to communicate God to us in ways that would not be possible with only fact statements. Since God is a spirit and does not have a body like man, Since he is infinite, eternal, and totally other than us, God chose to use particular aesthetic forms to communicate truth about himself that would not have been possible otherwise. These aesthetic forms in scripture are essential to the truth itself, since God's inspired word is exactly the best way that that truth could be presented. 
And so the truths of Scripture are not Scripture's propositional content that just happens to be contextualized in certain aesthetic forms. No. Truth in Scripture is content plus form, considered as an indivisible whole. As one author, Clyde Kilby, says, these aesthetic forms of Scripture are not merely decorative. They are part of the essential presentation of the Bible's truth. He says, we do not have truth and beauty, or truth decorated with beauty, or truth illustrated by the beautiful phrase, or truth in a beautiful setting. Truth and beauty are in the scriptures, as indeed they must always be an inseparable unity. And so to reduce God's truth only to doctrinal statements— really does great injustice to the way that God himself has chosen to reveal truth to us. But there's a reason that the Bible calls God a king rather than simply asserting the doctrinal fact of his rulership. There is a reason the Bible calls God a shepherd and fortress and father and husband and potter rather than simply stating the ideas underlying these metaphors. These images of God paint a picture that goes far beyond mere doctrinal accuracy. They communicate something that could not be expressed in mere prose. They form our imagination of who God is for the purpose of both expressing and shaping right heart inclinations toward God, which we have seen is at the core of Christian discipleship. The form of God's truth forms Christian discipleship. You know, any good text or seminary course on biblical interpretation will give some attention to the fact that the Bible comes to us in various literary forms. But while exegetes often give lip service to the aesthetic aspects of Scripture, at best they often acknowledge the literary forms as a means to aid them in drawing out what they believe to be the more important propositional content of the text. They view the form as something they have to get through in order to get to the revelatory content and then restate it in propositions. That didactic theological content, they believe, is what will really transform believers. With this view, understanding what the literary form communicated to the original audience might be important for interpretation, but not much more. The aesthetic forms of Scripture don't influence discipleship. They don't impact the way Scripture is read or preached. Every sermon is structured as if the text were epistolary. But this unveils the assumption once again that discipleship happens merely with didactic instruction. But what this betrays is a post-enlightenment, modernistic understanding of the nature of truth and human knowing, and in effect, denies the authority of what God inspired. As Kevin Van Hooser notes, I think correctly, evangelicals have been quick to decry the influence of modernism on liberal theology, but not to see the beam of modern epistemology in their own eye. So if we wish to make disciples who will observe all that Christ commanded, then we need to recognize that this happens through more than condensing correct doctrinal statements from God's word. Rather, Scripture embodies particular sentiments, affections, moods, and imaginations through its God-inspired aesthetic forms, which are essential to the cultivation of Christian virtue. It was this understanding that 
motivated me to write and publish Tune My Heart, a series of resources that are aimed at spiritual formation, discipleship, through the use of Scripture, but through using Scripture as Scripture has been presented to us by God. This resource includes a reading plan, study notes, reflection questions, a catechism, weekly Bible memory, weekly hymns, all published in one volume. And the intent behind this is to use the Word of God and to use the regular means of grace prescribed in the Word of God to form and shape our minds absolutely, but also our hearts. If we understand this mission that has been given to us to make disciples, then we will understand this involves theology. It involves teaching the mind, but it involves more than that. The Spirit-inspired Word contains aesthetic elements that shape the heart, that shape the imagination, and that shape the mind. This understanding, I believe, is a corrective to how we view much of what the church is and what the church does, including our corporate worship. Many evangelicals today consider corporate worship as simply a Christian's expression of authentic devotion toward God. But corporate worship is not merely expressive. Corporate worship is formative. This is how corporate worship fits into the Great Commission. The liturgy of a church shapes the liturgy of life. How a church worships week in and week out forms the people. It molds their behavior by shaping their inclinations through the practices that are employed week after week after week. When people engage in the liturgies that we have provided for them, they will inevitably be shaped by the values and beliefs worn into it. It is in Christian liturgy that a Christian's heart is shaped and molded, where a Christian's inclinations are discipled and trained, where the negative effects of the worldly liturgies and the cultures around us may be counteracted. In and through Christian worship, believers are built up and formed and discipled to be Christians who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Corporate worship is not simply a gathering of a group of individual Christians who express praise and thanks to God individually or even corporately. Corporate worship is the method through which God creates mature worshipers through the means that he has ordained. And this is why it is so essential that our worship be thoroughly infused by and shaped by the word of God, both in the doctrinal content and in how that content is shaped aesthetically in Scripture. You see, in corporate worship, God is forming us. God is shaping us into mature disciples of Jesus Christ. God really is the primary actor who is doing something to us, and it is only after he forms us that we respond back to him. It is God who calls us to draw near to him. It is God who speaks to us first. Only then do we respond back to him in worship. And even our responses of worship should be based not on the natural, authentic expression of our hearts, which are often immature and even sinful, but rather our responses should be framed by the words, forms, and affections ordained for us by God in his word. Corporate worship is the means through which God forms our image of him through his word. 
and matures our responses of worship toward him, molding our lives to be mature disciple worshipers of God. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating that will help us to spread the word. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Thank you.